Welcome to Cobden Centre Radio. I am your host, Patrick Crozier. It is the 12th of November 2012. My guest today is Douglas Carswell, Member of Parliament for Clacton and author of the recently published book, The End of Politics and the Birth of Our Democracy. This is not his first foray into publishing. Four years ago, he authored The Plan with Dan Hannan, MEP. As an MP, he is probably best known for introducing a private member's bill which would have led to Britain leaving the European Union. He describes himself as a reformed monetarist and is a supporter of the Cobden Centre. Can you tell us something about how the book came across? Okay, sorry, book came about. Well, um, the actual trigger was I was um, invited to go and talk to a group of young professionals in London, and um, I, I didn't feel like talking about um, the latest froth in Westminster, so I, I shared my thoughts about the internet and um, um, how it was going to change politics and economics and, and, and business, um, and also talked to them a little bit about the debt crisis and and how I saw the debt crisis as part of a, a, a more profound uh, malaise in the West. And um, at the end of uh, at the end of giving this after dinner talk, um, someone who had been uh, listening came up to me and was a literary agent and said, "Gosh, you should you should write this all down and, and publish it as a book." And a year later, here I am. Uh huh. Um... Okay, well, so there are, there are two parts to that. Can you tell us a bit about the how you see the debt crisis? Well, like many people listening, I probably first thought of the debt crisis as being maybe sort of a slight technical problem to do with a lack of correct oversight in banking, or or, or perhaps you know in the very early days, I, I thought maybe it was something to do with you know people buying um. um you know, too many uh, shacks in Alabama um, that they couldn't afford to keep up the repayments on. And, you know, I saw it purely as a, a, a narrow problem affecting subprime debt. But actually, I, I started asking a number of questions. And like many people started to realize, it, it's not really just about the banks. It's a, a far more profound crisis. Um, and I think, you know, the, the debt crisis is not... Um, purely a global crisis, it's, it's a Western crisis, and I can't help noticing it's a crisis for Western countries that basically have too much government. And putting, putting um, that thought together with the, uh, uh, you know, um, some rather searching questions about the, the nature of our post-Bretton Woods fiat, fiat money system, I started to realize if maybe you know, at, at its heart, the financial crisis is caused by um, Western governments trying to mask the declining Western competitiveness with cheap injections of credit. That um, could only work for 30 or 40 years. And uh, you know, fundamentally, maybe we've got a, a situation where we've got a, an expanding Western welfare model um, on the back of a shrinking wealth-creating base. And you know, the, the ultimate problem is that you, you, you can't do that. And um, really, the, the credit crunch was simply the at uh, uh, the beginning of uh, uh, the unravelling of um, a set of assumptions that we've had for, for one, if not several generations. And, um, you know, it's, it's the Western model that, that, is, um, that is 
is falling apart. It's not just a particular method of regulating banks. It's so like so the, the point being, this is this is a universal thing that affects the West. It's not just Greece. It's, it's all a- of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I can't have noticing that, you know, the two or three Western countries that haven't been affected by it, you know, Australia, uh, Korea, um, Switzerland, and one or two others, generally are, are, are countries that um, manage to have smaller government and government that generally tended to live within the tax base. And, um, you know, um, those Western countries that... Um, rather smugly look at Greece and think, you know, we're all right, like uh, Japan and Britain and the United States. Actually, I, I, I think what, what's happened to Greece is likely to happen to them too. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is something that I, I'm, I'm staggered by the way people think that, you know, it's, it's just Greece. No, or maybe, maybe yeah. Greece will go, or maybe Spain will go, but, no, but, but yeah. not us. No, no, I, I'm, I'm also, I mean, you know, th- th- there's no bigger opponent of British membership of the euro. I, I spent, you know, years campaigning against, you know, I stood for, uh, uh, against the euro um, in, in, in a number of general elections. But I'm also quite nervous about people who see the problems in the eurozone as an exclusively euro problem. I, I think that it's pretty ominous for all fiat currencies. Um, you know, what we see in the eurozone, I, I think, could be a straw in the wind. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that the George Osborne pound has necessarily been more uh, prudently managed than the euro. In fact, there's an argument saying it, with quantitative easing, it's been much less prudently managed. And I think where the euro, as the issue like the sort of paper currency archetype goes now, I, I, I think the dollar and the pound may follow. The, the question is, and we, we, see, we have had this, uh, as you, you mentioned, this fiat money system for 40 for odd years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine us ever going back to a to a gold standard, because a gold standard, or, or just gold as money, uh, imposes a certain discipline on on politicians. Can you ever see them? This is perhaps coming back to the, the coming to the second part of our of your book. Can you ever see them being that disciplined? Yeah. I, I would be very cautious about people who claim to know the answer and who you know say that you know we must move away from uh, one monetary regime to another. I, I, I think that actually maybe the problem is. Um, living under the tyranny of people who know what the monetary regime ought to be. I think we're going to move into a world where um, it's impossible to do that. And rather than have money decided for us by grand design, whether the grand design is a sort of gold standard or a a, a Bretton Woods type system or post Bretton Woods type system, I think the future actually probably lies in competing currencies. Now, this has been toyed with by, by many far greater minds than mine. Uh, for, for far longer, but I think the game changer in all of this is digital technology. If 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 you put it like this, technology, digital technology means that within you know the space of 20 years, we've moved to a world where it's possible, in technical terms, to pay in pretty much any currency you want. You go online or or, or you use a debit card in a foreign country, and you can basically pay for goods and services using uh, pretty much any currency you want. It's technically very easy to do. I think one of the implications of this is that it means we can shop around not just um, um, online for goods and services we want. We'll be able to shop around in, in whatever currencies we want. Um, and I think this will redefine uh, the nature of money. But put it another way, in, in, in Africa, there are certain countries which don't have big established banking systems. So using mobile technology, people in those countries now pay for things 
um, using, in effect, payments without banks. Once you have a world where it's possible to have payments without banks, uh, I think you then move into a world where it would be possible to store wealth without banks. This is the question that immediately sort of arises. How do they store the money then? Well, um, you're in effect moving into a world where, uh, you know, in Africa, a mobile phone credit might be the store of value. And so you're, you're, you're rather counting on the mobile phone provider not to devalue um, the worth of the mobile phone credit um, with the speed that the central bank devalues um, the uh, value of the currency. But, you know, if you've got, if you've got inflation of, you know, 20%, um, then rather than holding your wealth in shillings, um, not only are you paying for things um, using a, a, a mobile phone currency, it, it becomes worth your while to store wealth um, through uh, what is in effect a, a, a parallel currency. Now, I, I think you could envisage a world not that far away in, in the West where you have payments without banks. We're, we're already beginning to move to that. Um, and once you've got a world where you've got payments without banks, um, you know, if we were to get high inflation, I think you would you would start to see people storing wealth um, in in you know unconventional ways. Um, and you know, it, it's it's perfectly possible to envisage a world in in 20 or 30 years' time, perhaps even less than that, where it, the, the 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 idea of a state monopoly of money. Um, you know, it'll be rather like it'll be quaint. It'll be rather like the idea of Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, you know, um, we 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 can use the internet to free us from um, the tyranny of, of monopoly um, suppliers of knowledge. We can shop around and crowdsource knowledge through through, through Google and Wikipedia. I, I think pretty soon we'll be able to shop around and and, and use different um, means of payment and storing our wealth, different different competing currencies. But, but the, the the point you're, you're you're making is you you don't know you don't know what's going to happen. It yeah, could be a variety of, totally, of, of totally. things. I, and I, I'm I'm always slightly spooked when I give an interview like this, and I then get uh, emails telling me that the future is with Bitcoin, or it's with gold, or it's with the you know Norwegian krona or whatever. I'm <laughs> I, I I always reply to emails like that saying, "Hang on, the point is we don't know." Who twenty years ago could have contemplated that we would have something called Google that would allow us to access information by crowdsourcing the wisdom yeah. of tens of millions of people in an instant. Yeah, we, we just don't know. But what I do think we can say with some certainty is that the idea of a monopoly state currency um, is, is, is not going to be with us for much longer. Okay. Um, I, I've, I've, I've skipped over a bit here. We were, we were talking a bit earlier about, a, about the the debt crisis. Um, can you tell us about a bit about how you think it came about? Because it, well, it didn't start in 1970, did it? No, it didn't. I, we've there, there, we've moved into a world of the space of the past hundred years where governments in the West have have got vastly bigger. A you know, hundred years ago, the West was was pretty renowned for having a system of limited government. Um, we sometimes like to think that government grew big, you know, during World War One or World War Two. But 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 actually, the the large sustained increase and in the the largest sustained increases in Western governments have actually taken place really quite recently, um, since two thousand and uh, six seven. 
um, there's been a, a massive growth in, in government, particularly in the United States. Um, in the 60s and the 70s, um, in Western Europe, there's a massive expansion in, in, in government. How um, are we uh, measuring this, by the way? Well, I, uh, this is um, the amount of um, the amount that government spends each year as a percentage of, mm -hmm. of GDP. Um, it, and I, I ask in the book, you know, w w what allowed government in the West um, to grow so big? Um, and I argue in the, my, 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 my book, The End of Politics and the Birth of Democracy, that um, governments have been able to do this basically by, by three distinct methods. Um, the first thing that they did um, about 100 years ago was invent unequal taxation. It, in, in the words of uh, Louis XIV's finance minister, taxation is the art of um, extracting feathers from a goose with the minimum amount of hissing. If you want to pluck feathers from a flock of geese um, and you extract um, the same number of feathers from them at the same time, you'll end up with a flock of pretty angry geese. Once you can uh, tax unequally, you can extract some feathers from some of the geese and, and not alienate the whole flock at the same time. No, no, when, you, so, when you say unequally, so, well, we, we was to, to continue the metaphor, you mean that some geese are bigger than others and have more feathers. And if you take up, say, 10% of their 10 of feathers off all of them, some are losing one, well, they're not losing more feathers, they're losing a bigger feathers. Or... Well, no, I, I, um, the, the point I'm making is that if every voter in the United States in the 19th century knew that any increase in government would mean that they would have to pay towards it, um, they would be far less likely to vote in favor of a redistributive government uh, than after the invention of unequal taxation. And, and we know this. Um, in the 1890s, at a time of chronic um, economic depression, um, the, the uh, voters in America were offered an explicitly redistributive um, um, platform um, by the so-called populists. The whole point about the populists is that they turn out not to be very popular. Um, one of the reasons for that is because the burden of, of the cost of, of redistributed government would be borne by by a broad base of people so if if, if I could uh, return to the uh, uh, point that I'm making it's by inventing unequal taxation um, that government about a hundred years ago was able to start to expand um, if you um, look at if you look at Australia um, Britain America um, unequal taxation um, so-called progressive income tax came into force from between uh, 1908 and 1913. Um, it's increased really? um, in every every decade since. So um, the invention of unequal taxation was the first um, pillar on which the government rests. Obviously, government couldn't simply even 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 with unequal taxation, government started to live beyond its means pretty quickly. So it then resorted to two further means of extracting uh, money, and this is basically by, by um, spending without taxation. The first is through borrowing, and governments have been borrowing since the 1700s, if not before. But in the 20th century, they invented what you might term rollover borrowing, borrowing with a view to not actually paying it back, but just uh, rolling it over. Um, and of course, the third, um, and we touched on this already, the third um, um, pillar on which big government rests is monetary manipulation since 1971, the inflation tax that Western governments have deliberately devalued um, the currency internally 
in order to transfer resources from us to them. In, in fact, Western finance ministers have tended to meet every every uh, few months, uh, every year or so, um, to discuss their so-called inflation targets. In other words, to work out the value, the, the rate at which they're going to debauch their own currency, so as not to uh, devalue it externally. So, you know, these are the three pillars on which um, the government rests. Now, usually, at this point in the conversation, someone will then say, "Ah, no, 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 no." no. Carswell, you don't understand. The government grew big because of democracy. Well, well, <laughs> the, the, the history simply doesn't fit. Um, it's a it's a argument that's often um, asserted, but I, I've seldom actually heard the case made. Take, for example, America from the 1830s um, right through until the outbreak. Uh, well, uh, until um, you know, 1912, 1913. Um, every or, or pretty much every um, uh, male um, had the vote. Uh, it was male. an imperfect democracy. Absolutely, it was a very imperfect democracy, but it was a mass democracy. Um, the um, um, uh, uh, people with below median incomes were, were far more numerous than those um, with, with above average incomes. And yet not once during peacetime did federal expenditure exceed more than 3% of gross domestic product. Not once. And as I said earlier, in, in, even at the height of the extraordinary depression of the 1890s, um, uh, and, uh, you know, when there were 700 bank failures, when the economy contracted by 5% in one year and 7% the following year, when there was 18% unemployment and 40% uh, unemployment amongst non-farm workers, even then, the uh, candidate standing on a platform offering um, to devalue the currency uh, and uh, redistribute um, failed and failed failed catastrophically um, politically so you know you, you turn your attention to England the, the democracy leads to big government hypothesis falls down in England uh, in the early part of the 19th century the British state was far more redistributive through the poor laws than it was in the last decades of the 19th century in other words as we became more democratic the state became less redistributive uh, the the um, democracy leads to big government theory really has the biggest problem, though, explaining Prussia. Prussia was not just undemocratic, it was the epitome of an anti-democratic European state. It, it had arrangements that were specifically designed to prevent the uh, working man from having uh, a, a political control, and yet, which was the state that pioneered uh, big government interventionism. I, I, I think that when people... Um, lazily say that you know democracy leads to big government they, it's a it's a it's a misunderstanding it's not the extension of the franchise that caused government to grow it's the unequal division of the tax base i it, see now now okay but in that case how did the unequal how did how did unequal taxation come about what was well, i mean I, at some point for some reason it was prevented and then as, as, as i said um, in in the in the in the about 100 years ago uh, in America and Britain, in Australia and other Western countries, there were um, a lot of so-called progressives, um, intellectuals, uh, an elite who, who argued fiercely in favor of in the United States a federal income tax. It was initially deemed unconstitutional. In, in Britain, it was Lloyd George's budget. Um, but they explicitly argued for unequal taxation um, in order to allow the state to do things that uh, 
mass democracy had prevented the state from doing. So you know, today when you suggest, um, as I have um, in various universities, that um, there was unequal taxation that led to the growth of big government, I quite often have those on the left jumping up and down and saying, how dare you? But you know, look at those who were advocating unequal taxation at the time. They, they advocated unequal taxation precisely because they wanted to allow the elites to subvert the constraints of, of, of parliamentary democracy or congressional democracy that had hitherto kept government small. In 19th century Britain, um, there were no shortage of people um, amongst the elites who wanted to um, expand the role of the state. I mean, we go back to Jeremy Bentham. Um, he wanted to uh, have a much more activist state. Um, we tend to think of 19th century Britain as a, a, an era where there was you know, a minimalist state. But that was because parliament kept um, those who would be activists and Prussian in their outlook at bay. Um, it's, it's once you invent unequal taxation and then subsequently allow governments to spend without taxing at all that you see officialdom siphoning off more resources to officialdom. It, it, it's an it's a important but subtle point. But I think for those on the centre-right, it's, it's quite profound. I, I think again and again and again, those of us on the right, have, have misunderstood and seen democracy as a threat rather than an ally. And it's prevented us from recognizing that actually if we want to rein in big government, rather than uh, renouncing democracy and seeing it as the problem, we, we, we actually have to ensure that we have a, a 21st century type democracy to hold it to account and in check a 21st century size state rather than the 19th century system of democracy that we still so tragically are left with. Wow. Well, I, I, I hadn't expected to hear that. I must, I must confess. I, yes, I, I'm, I'm one of those people on the right who has, up to now, always, always thought that. Yep. And, and I suppose... And, and, and how, how, how are things going for us? <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> okay, so, um, it, it, democracy ought to be... I mean, there's a reason why a few years ago I wrote a book talking about direct democracy. I, I think direct democracy is the only way we can liberate uh, the institutions from the pernicious and malevolent influence uh, 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 of a leftist elite who, as, as Gramsci predicted, uh, could, could have a long march through the institutions. Only through direct democracy can we retake the institutions. Uh, unfortunately, you know, with, with so many on the centre-right seeing democracy as the problem, um, you know, the left is, is given uh, free reign um, in control of the institutions. Well, well, that's good because um, that comes on to the second part of what you were saying about the future of uh, democracy. Um, how do you see that working? Well, I was asked a question the other day. Somebody said, you know, you talk about our democracy. Does this mean that, you know, we won't vote and we'll, or rather we'll vote with a click of a mouse and everything will be decided in some big cloud? And absolutely not true. Nonsense. Um, the issue really is about collective decision-making. Um, if I... We, there are certain decisions that have to be made collectively, and I think always will need to be made collectively. Um, if you want to have an opening game ceremony for an Olympics, I think you're going to have to accept that we should all pay collectively taxation, and that some state quango will preside over it, and a minister will try and hold them to account, and they will almost inevitably come back and say we need more money, and you know all those those um, inefficiencies in the model um, uh, will, will be present. But you know we will just have to grin and bear it. I, I don't see any other way. Similarly, if you want to have an army, I think you 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 need to pay for it collectively and use that sort of collectivist model. But an awful lot of collective decisions just don't require 
government to be involved anymore. Um, and I think this is because of the digital revolution. Um, do we really need, um, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, there's this great myth that, you know, we, we vote because it's some sort of public choice theory. Um, but do we really need um, the state to be involved in collective decisions such as deciding um, on the curriculum for our child? When I say it's a collective decision to decide on the curriculum for our child, um, now, even the cleverest polymath in the country, I don't think, would have all the information that they need to know how to educate their child, um, even if you're an incredibly articulate, um, educated professor. You're still going to um, need um, some other people to give you uh, crowdsourced wisdom about uh, a curriculum for your child. Um, up until now, we've we've made a decision about um, a national curriculum by by trying to harness that wisdom in a in a room full of experts in Whitehall. I, I suspect that digital technology will allow us to make collective decisions about how to educate our children um, without involving the state at all. So this is the question. I mean, which many free marketeers would ask is, do we need um, a collective decision about this at all? No, bingo. Um, let me put it this way. It, if, if in the street where you lived, we had a system where we decided on the breakfast cereals that you were going to eat for the next four or five years by having a vote, you know, people like me who are in the Weetabix eating majority would probably force everyone to vote to eat Weetabix. Um, you know, if Cocoa Pops or Muesli was your, your, your favorite, you'd probably be out of luck. But you know, it, it would be ridiculous to have a vote to decide on what breakfast cereal we, we should eat. We recognize that actually the way to do it is to allow everyone to vote with those things called uh, uh, five pound notes um, at a supermarket. And, and we each vote with money um, to decide on what our household wants to eat for breakfast. And you know what? Everyone gets what they want and everyone's happy. If, if you can uh, accept that we don't need to collectively decide on, on the content of our breakfast at cereal cupboard, why not um, allow people that sort of um, autonomous individual decision-making over other aspects of their lives. Um, it, it is possible. Now, the argument has always been, you know, um, it's okay to do that for breakfast cereal, but you know, um, the people don't know what good looks like. Um, you know, you can't trust people to make decisions. That the man in Whitehall really does know best. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but, but that's simply no longer true anymore because of the digital revolution. Um, you know, if, if, if you contemplate Google, it's a, a system for making collective um, crowdsourcing uh, uh, the wisdom of, 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 of tens of thousands. It's just the beginning. Once you live in a world where you can crowdsource sentiment, and this is what's beginning to happen, it, it would enable someone like me, who's a complete, complete dunderhead when it comes to, to, to French or Spanish, to actually make quite a sophisticated choice on, on what sort of uh, Spanish or French curriculum my, my, my daughter should study. Uh, not because I know anything about the subjects, but because I can uh, crowdsource the sentiment of tens of thousands of, of people who, who've already um, made that decision. Um, in other words, instead of just having a free market for prices and brands, you're about to have a free market for sentiment. And it, it's a profound change, but it basically means that our collective brain becomes vastly, vastly bigger. Um, and it will allow, you know, instead of instead of the alternative to state decision making being leaving it to individuals to make decisions in isolation, every individual will be able to make a decision with as much information at their fingertips as the most expert 
uh, educationalist in a government department. I mean, it sounds as like you're saying that information is power and that these days us people, we have, we have more information at our fingertips. And Absolutely. It's, but it's not just having more information. It's having the analysis of that information. It's, it's, mm. it's what I call the crowdsourcing of sentiment. You know, I, I, we've long lived in a world where it's possible um, for a particular individual to get acres and acres of information. The problem is that you know, in, in, unless you are a particularly geeky person or a particular swat or an obsessive, you probably didn't have time to wade through it and analyze it. And if you did, you probably didn't have the expertise to, to, to make the correct anal analysis. But we, we now live in a world where it's possible to harness an analysis made by the sentiments of tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, Google is just the beginning. When, when you live in a world where we can crowdsource sentiment for almost everything, um, it's, it will be possible to make decisions um, that it, until now only an expert could have made. And I would say that actually there will probably be much wiser decisions than those that only an expert could make. Because you know, ultimately an expert is, is a, 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 an individual making subjective choices. Uh, but once every individual can make subjective choices, you can objectively look at that and, and, and uh, you know, make, a, make, make a pretty informed decision. Uh, put it another way, 30 years ago, um, the idea that all of us could look at information and analysis that you know, would previously have only been available to, 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 to a government department would have seemed absurd. It's now co commonplace. Mm-hmm. That's certainly true. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how, how you, you see this happening. Do you think it's going to be more a case of that certain functions that are currently um, carried out by government become effectively privatized? I know that's slightly, um, it's, been, it's become a debased word, privatized, privatized. Or do you see it as, as more in sense of um, functions still being carried out by government, but on a more tailored basis? Well, I, I, I think, I, think I, I, I wouldn't talk about being privatized. I mean, first of all, you know, the state has lived beyond its means and lived beyond its means uh, pretty catastrophically. So uh, you know, at the moment, the British state has about £30,000 a year to spend commissioning services for the average family in this country. Uh, I suspect that um, in the medium term, uh, before the end of this decade, um, there will come a time when the British state simply does not have the amount of money that it thinks it has to commission services for us. Um, so it will have to um, find a way of getting more for less. Um, now, the public administration in Britain has been notoriously ineffective at achieving more for less. Um, it, you know, well, um, those who provide us with food and housing and clothes have over generations been able to give us more for less. Um, the public administration in Britain has, has been notoriously bad. Uh, any gains in productivity made in the uh, uh, 80s and 90s have actually probably been reversed over the past decade. So there's only one way I think that public administration in this country will be able to be more effective and, and close the gap between our high expectations and, and fiscal reality. And that is going to be by allowing what, what you might call self-commissioning. Self-commissioning is, is possible in a way that simply wasn't feasible. Um, you know, if, if the state spends, say, eight or £9,000 a year uh, paying for a, an individual child's education, 
um, I, I think we're pretty close. Sorry, to eight or nine thousand pounds a year. It, some local authorities pay between eight and nine thousand pounds a year uh, commissioning education that for a child. Um, if if the state um, does that. Um, uh, at the moment, it, it, it does it pretty ineffectively. W what would be to stop, um, um, instead of public administration converting those tax pounds into in, into education, why not allow um, the parents of the child working with the teacher to, to allocate those resources? Now, previously, you know, it, it, it was hideously complicated to do it, and you know, even the idea of vouchers that, that has long been talked about on the right um, ne never quite um, managed to, to do it. But you know, I, I think if you live in a world where um, you, you, you have um, much more tailor-made um, public service provision, um, it, it will be possible to spend that money um, and make individual choices for an individual child and create a tailor-made niche curriculum in a way that's just simply not been possible in the past. Mm. Mm. So that's education. I mean, are there any other sort of functions the government you think might... Well, you're, you're going to one one point I should have made. The the digital revolution creates certain things that we can already observe. One of the things it creates is is hyper personalization. You know, if you had said 20 years ago that one day I'd have my own radio station, um, you, you know, I would have thought you meant that I'd be a, a media plutocrat. But in a sense, all of us now have our own private radio station. In fact, the Cobbland Centre more or less has its own private radio station. <laughs> yes. On my Spotify account, on my iTunes account, I, I in effect have my own private radio station. Um, in other words, instead of a world where we had to make do with generic outputs, we now live in a world where it's possible to make very, very tailor-made choices. And it's not just for the music we listen to, but Twitter allows us to personalize the news we, 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 we access. Um, iPlayer I allows us to um, decide for ourselves uh, how, we, how we view television. Once you understand that we live in a world of hyper-personalization, you, you can start to see that th those hyper-personalized uh, choices are going to be applied to, to public service provision too. Um, and we will start to see the hyper-personalization of, of how our children learn. Um, I think you'll start to see um, personal health accounts um, so that a, a, a particular family can make choices um, about their health needs um, rather than having to make do with the stand in line and wait system of, of healthcare rationing that, 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 that we're used to. Um, Hyper-personalization of public services will mean that the actual public, tens of millions of them, will be allowed to make choices that previously we've left a remote elite to make on, on, on all our behalf. I mean, I mean, I, I suppose that the, the problem is, I mean, in the in, in, the, in the Thatcher period, um, I mean, she she would, I'm sure, would have been, been keen on this sort of thing. Obviously, she she, she couldn't she couldn't do it. Um, but there are there's tremendous pressure. There's an there's a there's an emotional need for this this sort of thing. People get very emotional about things like the NHS and, and they believe this is a, is a wonderful thing. I mean, doesn't doesn't that have to have to go first? People people uh, get right uh, emotional about the NHS and, and quite rightly, um, you know, a, an enormous number of of people depend upon um, um, a system of um, collectivised health provision, and yeah, I wouldn't want to do anything that that removes that system of collectivised health provision. But 
the point I'm trying to make is that you don't need to do collectivism necessarily via the man in Whitehall. It, it's quite possible to envisage a world where uh, healthcare is free, um, where um, there is absolutely no um, uh, you know, uh, uh, attempt to ration access on the basis of, of income, um, and where the only criteria that decides that what treatment you get is, is clinical need. Um, it, it's quite possible to envisage that world. The, the problem is that we don't have that world. If you're rich, you can get access to healthcare in many parts of the country faster than if you're not. Um, we have a sort of parallel system where you know uh, the very rich can, can can buy treatment that's not available to um, most people. Um, part of the problem is because collectivism has always meant doing things through government. If government could pay for healthcare, but give those that wanted to uh, the right to um, you know run their own personalized health account, it, it, it could ensure much greater equality, much better outcomes, and it could so, so instance, closely correlate the allocation of resources with clinical needs. That just doesn't happen at the moment. Look at the cues that you have in the NHS. They are a direct consequence of the inability to match resources to clinical need. I'm just trying to picture how this would work. So I would, for instance, rather than have the money spent by the government on my behalf, I would... Um, but, Here's a, here's a thought. At the moment, the British state probably spends this year on your family more or less what it would cost on the open market for you to buy private medical insurance for your family. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, why not allow you, if you wanted to, to do what they do in Singapore, where they've got much better health outcomes than we have in this country, and incidentally spend much less per capita on health than we do, why not allow... Uh, as in Singapore, those who are not happy with the system say, do you know what, I want to create a, my own, my own uh, government-funded pot of money, which I will, together with a, a, a clinician and a, a, a health insurer, um, ensure that my family's needs are best met. It's quite possible to do that. And, and you wouldn't do it in a way that takes anything away from anyone else. You getting that would not mean that your neighbor had less. It would be quite possible to do that in a way that simply ensured that you know the, the pot of money that was available to your family um, was uh, available um, to ensure that clinical needs were met yeah. at the moment we have a system where you know clinical needs and resources are not matched the way they should be and that's because fundamentally we've got a stand in line and wait system and until we're prepared to address that and 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 do things differently we're not going to get the out the very outcomes that you know um those who founded the nhs originally aspired to uh, at the outset of this this talk we, we sort of came to the conclusion that um the western debt crisis is is largely founded in the invention of unequal taxation and that um, the internet eye democracy will have a, well, a no, huge no, impact no. on... The, the, the debt crisis isn't caused by unequal taxation. The, the expansion of government is caused by, um, or, or began with, um, unequal taxation, followed by mm -hmm. excessive borrowing and money manipulation. It, it, it's those two latter points. It's excessive borrowing and monetary manipulation. In other words, living beyond the tax base that has caused the Western debt crisis. Yes. Right, I see. Um, oh, well, in that case, that, the question sort of 
well, the question sort of uh, survives just about, is that do you think um, uh, the growth of the birth of our democracy will have an impact on unequal taxation? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, um, the, the digital economy means some profound changes. And one of the things that I think is beginning to change quite profoundly is the notion of a tax base. Um, to go back to my idea earlier, uh, uh, my, my metaphor, or was it a simile, I forget, um, to do with, with um, geese. geese. I'd originally said that, you know, quoting um, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, Louis XIV finance minister, that the art of taxation is the art of extracting geese, uh, the minimum amount of geese, with the, uh, the, the, the maximum number of geese, uh, sorry, the maximum amount of feathers with the minimum amount of hissing. Um, number one, in the digital economy, um, Geese have never been so mobile. Um, if, if you contemplate that, you know, 10% of Americans um, today uh, contribute um, to more than 64% of uh, the tax base, um, you know, if one in a hundred of, of, of the richest people um, migrated, it, it would have a pretty profound impact upon um, the tax base. That may not matter so much in America, which is a, a continental uh, economy, but in a relatively small country, relatively small countries in, in Western Europe, um, you, you can see how, you know, if 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 only a small percentage of of the best paid were to move from one jurisdiction to another, it could have a profound impact. But but, but that's not even that's not really the the, the the essential point. The essential point is that in the 19th century. The tax base, if, if, if the state wanted to tax things, it had to tax the wealth. And the wealth was, generally speaking, factories, for, for, to, to be simple, simplistic about it. A factory can move, but it's kind of difficult to move. Um, so you could tax um, the source of the wealth, the factories and the people who worked in them, and be pretty certain that they wouldn't move. In extreme cases, they might, but generally speaking, they didn't. The, the, the problem for the state is that the source of wealth is, is less factories today, and it's more intellectual property. Now, intellectual property is as mobile as an email. We've heard a number of debates recently about um, you know, whether or not Apple is paying its uh, right level of taxation, and I think some of the mobile phone companies have been accused of tax evasion, and you know, there's been this great row evasion or avoidance. If you actually examine a lot of what's going on, the debate boils down to whether or not that company is exploiting its intellectual property in tax jurisdiction A or B. <laughs> it's a moot point. <laughs> it's, mm. you know, um, it, it's not an, uh, an issue that's going to be answered by simply changing you know, one loophole or another. We're now moving into a world where various treasuries around the world are, are, are trying to give themselves um, the power to sort of arbitrarily set a tax rate that they think is appropriate to a particular company. Um, but, you know, even that I don't think is, 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 is going to solve the problem. The, the fundamental problem is that in the digital economy, uh, the thing that creates the wealth, intellectual property, is hypermobile. And instead of a tax base, it's going to be a tax stream. It's going to be very fluid and it will flow away. So, you know, I, I think this will have profound implications upon um, the tax system. It means that the tax system will have to become much flatter. And there's some evidence we're beginning to see this. Um, there's a shift in, in the tax burden away from taxes on income. Um, and you know, I, I, I think you know, we, if we were to move back to a world where 
um, the state primarily taxed, um, you know, um, assets rather than income, um, or property rather than income, um, tax would be far more proportional. You know, if, if you're, if you're, say, for example, taxing consumption, you know, taxes generally have to be proportional. Do, do you tax someone? on the second basket of shopping at a higher rate than the first basket of shopping. Um, taxes, on, taxes on property, generally speaking, have to be more proportional than those on income. So, you know, when you when you can no longer tax income and, and you have to start taxing more proportionately and, and, and you start having flatter taxes, um, in a sense, you, you resensitize a broader segment of the electorate to uh, tax taxation. Um, you know, the guess where that's going to end politically? You're, you're going to have more people um, objecting to a big government. Um, and, you know, it won't, you know, the BBC quite often uh, reports um, or, uh, uh, those of us who want lower taxes as those, ours was a, a minority sectional interest. Um, when, when a broad base of people are, are, are going to have to pay a proportionate amount every time government wants to do something, um, far from being a minority pursuit, low, low tax will become uh, 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 have a mass appeal, a bit like it did in the 19th century. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, um, let's hope so. Uh, Douglas, we're almost out of time now. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add? No. Um, I mean, I, I think the key message of my book is cheer up. Um, we've we've had this system of ever more government and you know the western model has become a big government model but it, the message of the book is it, it's been an aberration it it's a, it's a temporary phase um the west was great because we had limited government in the 1640s in this country and in the uh, 1770s in, in north america um we, we we discovered the art of of limited government and how to rein in government um, we, we forgot the lesson, which is why you know the, the West has been in, 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 in a period of relative decline. But um, you know the future the future is going to be great because we're going to rediscover uh, the art of limited government. And as we do that, um, well, you know we, we will we will do really quite well. Um, and, and the really optimistic thing is that I think the rest of the world is learning the art of limited government. So you know um, you know those parts of the world that are growing fast have relatively uh, small states um you know and i i i i think um the west um is 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 on the verge of rejecting its its big government model not just um, um because of necessity but but because of technology um i i'm very optimistic i see a, a world in which limited government becomes a global norm um and um i think that will have uh, profound implications for the better imagine a world where we can um, you know, um, shop around in any, any currency we want, where the ability of uh, a tiny uh, parasitical elite in our so-called capital cities to tell us how to live our lives has been massively diminished. It, it's going to be great. Douglas Carswell, thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the Cobden Centre for honest money and social progress. To listen to future editions, please check out the website or subscribe to the feed. The music featured in this podcast is from Kapeka by Et. <laughs> <laughs>